Hey everyone, welcome back to the Kaderna Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Kaderna. In today's episode, I'll be interviewing Jennifer Farrell, and we discuss her unique business strategy called the Triangle Method. If you're not familiar with Jennifer, perhaps from TV, let me give you a quick bio. Jennifer Farrell is a celebrity designer and television host. She became nationally known hosting the long-running series Find and Design, and currently hosts the hit shows Million Dollar House Hunters, Find Me a Beach House, and Most Amazing Homes. As the founder of Jennifer Farrell Designs, she's won many accolades over her career, and her work has appeared in Lux Magazine, Entertainment Weekly, House and Garden, The View, and much more. Her most popular venture has been the Jennifer Farrell Collection, featuring hundreds of furniture and decor pieces at over 1,400 stores nationwide. She is a spokesperson for Realtor.com and a brand advocate for Forever Lawn. In today's episode, we focus on that unique strategy called the Triangle Method as we discuss her design, TV, and brand partnerships, a three-pronged approach to diversify her business pursuits. Jennifer's advice on recession-proofing yourself translates well no matter what business you're in. We cover together the creative process, breaking through in modern media, the power of collaboration, real estate trends, and of course, plenty for fans of interior design. But before we start, I'd just like to remind everyone to please subscribe and leave a review wherever you're watching or listening today. Thank you. And without further ado, here's Jennifer Farrell. Is going to require work and time and sweat and toil. If money wasn't an issue, what would I be doing? Don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. Change is the only constant. The Cadena Podcast. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Brian. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you for joining us. You know, as I'm, I'm going through your bio, I'm like, man, you keep pretty busy. It seems like you're doing <laughs> it all. <laughs> I do keep busy. And uh, I think one of the things we'll talk about today is the importance of diversification to keep you busy in life. Yeah, it seems that way. And, and is that something that you kind of stumbled into just as your career went on or... Have you always been someone that that wanted to do this, wanted to do that, and kind of, I don't want to say got bored easily, but always wanted something new and exciting? Yes, I've always wanted something to keep me busy and new and exciting. And I've always had multiple passions. Even as a little kid, I was, uh, you know, I was that child you'd put up on the soapbox to start tap dancing, but I also was the one building Barbie houses instead of playing with my Barbies. So I've always had multiple <laughs> passions in both entertainment and design. And as my life and my career have progressed, I've realized in recent times, I've realized that uh, the overarching title of my life is storyteller. So whether I okay. am talking about real estate and how to achieve it and how to master it, or whether I'm uh, discussing design or creating designs in people's homes or businesses, or whether I'm hosting a show and guiding homeowners to finding their, their dream home. I'm realizing that storyteller is really my, my overarching theme in life. Okay. That's interesting. And I always like to go back to the Genesis and kind of see like how you got to where you are now and where it all began. You know, for instance, like when you were in, in high school or even in college, what piqued your interest? Did you always know you wanted to be kind of a creative or, or something artistic? Um, or was it more real estate and entrepreneurship? Like what were your interests, you know, back then? Growing up, I, you know, believe it or not, I'm a math nerd. And so I was <laughs> always a, a scholar of sorts. And I went to Northwestern University, which I, I loved and has an amazing academic program, of course, but I also have always been very creative. So it's an interesting balance to be a business person and a creative. Those sometimes don't, don't merge very well, but that does come from my youth. I went to a performing arts high school and okay. I knew that I wanted to, and I, my mom was so great. She took me all around the country, starting in sixth grade, looking for the right performing arts high school. And it was a three-year exploration going literally from the top of our country all the way down. And when we found the school that I went to, which was the um, Sarasota Visual and Performing Arts Center, 
my mom packed us up and, and moved us there because it was not only an outstanding academic program, but excuse me, an, an artistic program, but then the, the school it was in, Booker High School, had outstanding academics. So it was a really nice balance because, again, I was a math nerd and, and a school nerd, yeah. and I wanted to have both sides of that, that picture. And so in high school, hmm. I got to sing and dance and paint and draw and act and do all these fabulous artistic endeavors that really crafted who I am now as a, as a business person. But then I yeah. also learned how to read and write and add in a decent way. So that <laughs> has been a nice balance. And that's actually why I went to Northwestern. The same, you know, I, I had auditioned at some really great programs and was accepted in some very interesting places for college, but Northwestern was my number one choice because mm. obviously their academic program is, you know, top notch and sure. then their theater program was top notch and their design program is top notch. So it really was sort of the blend of everything. So my, my genesis is that I'm now doing the same things that I did in high school and in elementary school, and I'm just getting paid for it now. <laughs> Yeah, and that's that's a beautiful thing if you can kind of do what you love. Yeah. It, were your parents in the arts, or was that something that you kind of stumbled on on your own? Stumbled on that on my own. My my father was a military man who then became a he was a fighter pilot, and then he became a pilot for United wow. Airlines. And uh, my my mother was a school teacher. My parents divorced when I was young, and my mom really kind of dedicated herself not only to teaching and, and rearing other kids, but to making sure that I had everything I needed. So she was a really great supporter. I mean, not too many parents would pack up and move to another town just so that their kid could go to the school they wanted to go to. Yeah, no, that's, that's an interesting beginning. And so when you, you graduate Northwestern, um, well, I guess, where did design come into play? Because I know a lot of people, they, they view that as, as a passion or perhaps a hobby, you know, that it's an exciting thing to kind of, you know, make a, a blank canvas into something beautiful. But how were you able eventually to segue that into a career, you know, like you've done? Mm -hmm. Well, at Northwestern, I was going through the undergraduate theater program at the same time I was going through the graduate design program. So I was really mm -hmm. picking up skills that ended up playing out later in my life. Although my professors would say to me, lady, you're going to have to pick a job because you can't do both <laughs> things. And turns out I can, but yeah. this was before the, you know, the home makeover television genre even came into play. There was no reality TV at the time. Mm -hmm. And so I uh, got out of college, came back to California, which is my birthplace. And when I got to California, I was actually in the film world first. And then I really found myself missing the design side of my world. And I remember actually while I was producing a film, watching this strange little channel called HGTV. And yeah. Joan Stefan had a show on uh, called Decorating Sense. And she was transforming these rooms for $500. And I thought, well, isn't that novel? And it inspired me to uh, say, you know what, I think I'm not really happy in the film world and I miss the design world. So in 2001, I opened Jennifer Farrell Designs and 2003 was when I was a series regular on Merge, which was a huge show, a uh, design show with Lisa Rinna. And huh. so it wasn't very long after I opened my design firm that I landed a television show. And that wasn't necessarily intentional at first, but those two have really gone hand in hand now where my design firm has been, this is year 23 of my design firm and I've been on TV now for over 20 years. Wow. That, that, that is pretty cool. And do you credit that to networking or like where, where were you able to make some of those inroads? Cause I know even, you know, obviously and I'm a total different world as a financial advisor, but I think, you know, for any entrepreneur or any business owner, it starts out the same where it's like, all right, I have this idea. I'm passionate about it. Now I've got to bring it out to the world. Mm -hmm. Where do I go? Where do I turn? Who do I call? You know, what do I do? What were some of those first steps you had when you created Jennifer Farrell Designs? And then if you could also lead us into then where it brought you to TV. Well, you know, that is an interesting journey because the TV part, 
I was sort of right place, right time, right skill set. And now I don't know if it translates the same way. So when I first started out as a designer and it was just me, um, you know, that's really kind of where you're stomping the pavement a little bit and reaching out to, it's hard to get started as a designer. And I don't think that's any less true now than it was when I started you really have to be reaching out to friends and friends of friends and, Mm -hmm. you know, buddies of your dad. And so kind of getting that, as you said, networking, but you're networking in a very small circle first because Mm -hmm. design as much as any business is built on relationships. And so, yes, you can do advertising. Yes, you can do sort of structured networking, but relationships build design. It's it's much more so than design itself. And mm-hmm. I think any designer who's really succeeded in this business would agree with that, that the relationship element is something that you have to build and cultivate. So in the beginning, you know, it gets a little bit slow. I will say that once I started doing my first show, that's when my design work did start building a lot because I was in the public eye a lot more. And that was back sure. when a a reality TV design show was on a Friday night at 9 p.m. I mean, we had millions of watchers. So we had a very big audience. And that did, in my early years, bolster my design career. However, over time, the two sometimes have been not uh, simpatico because when I'm getting really busy on television shows, it becomes difficult to maintain the design side of the business, even though I have Mm -hmm. wonderful people who help me do that now. But um, then when I was doing a lot of design work, it would be hard to leave for TV shows. So sometimes that journey has had bumps and and things that have taken a while to figure out. As far as how that would adapt and, and interpret for people starting out in either of these businesses, if they're wanting to sort of combine those together, now mm-hmm. it's a whole different universe because the power of social media has has interrupted the the old flow of how you get your talents out there to be witnessed. Sure. Yeah. And that I always thought that would be tough to kind of juggle all these different things that you have going on. Um, have you found over time that you have a more of a passion for one, whether it be the TV and communicating to the broad audience or just getting to be on your own kind of in your domain as a designer, or, or do you like kind of the, the diversity of doing one kind of then moving to the other? Well, my business has three parts to the triangle. So that okay. was one of the things that you and I had sort of talked about before, before starting today. Sure. I have a business model that's a little bit different. Um, so it's a, a triangle and mm-hmm. I've got three points that support the the brand of Jennifer Farrell and Jennifer Farrell Designs. So I have my design business, which is okay. classic interior design. It's a residential design business. Uh, we do high-end interiors, ground up remodels. So there's that side of my business. Mm-hmm. Then there is the public figure side of my business. That's my TV shows. That's my public appearances. That's my, yep. you know, hosting and MCs and live meet and greets and all of my public figure uh, elements. And then mm-hmm. those two have over the years not always been together, but the part that's now uniting them in the triangle is my brand partnerships. So that is my product licensing. Those are my endorsement deals. Those are my brand partners in these show homes that I create, where I'm bringing all these different luxury brands in for an ongoing luxury uh, show home experience. Um, That's my um, ambassadorship deals, spokesperson work. So the the triangle now has three different parts. So when you're seeing me as a public figure, you're getting to hear me as an expert. When you're working with me as an interior design firm owner, you're getting my design creativity. And then when you're working with me in brand partnerships, you're getting my business acumen where I'm taking those two parts and bringing them together to support the brands that I partner with. So that's a long story, but it doesn't, it may sound like it doesn't necessarily adapt to all businesses, but one of the things that I wanted to talk about is diversification, particularly in today's economy, that diversification of your knowledge base and your income base is in my experience, 
one of the strengths that gets me through no matter what economy uh, we're living in. Yeah. And to kind of piggyback on that point, you know, there's so much here and I know it's a triangle, but there's a lot of intersection with that triangle, a lot of different mm -hmm. things going on. What is the team of Jennifer Farrell look like? Is it, is it just you then with some sounding boards that you trust and rely on? Or do you have appointed people for each part of that triangle that, that take a lot of the load off your back? Like, what does that look like? It's, it's somewhere in between those two. Uh, so okay. each of these parts of the triangle, there's different management, marketing, uh, PR teams that focus on each of these. There's different mm -hmm. support structures, especially on my design side. Um, you know, no, no one can design in a vacuum. There's just no such thing. So that's just art. <laughs> if you're, if you are yeah. creating it and you're doing it with no one else involved, you can do that. We call that art. And then when you have to bring in other people to implement it into a physical functioning reality where someone can live, that's where the design element comes in. And so I can do none of these on my own. I, mm -hmm. however, have my fingers in every pot. So there's nothing that gets done or even guided without me being the overarching person who is supervising every design, who is supervising every public appearance, who's crafting content for those appearances. Um, you know, there's times when I, I produce seasons of my own shows. So I am involved deeply in all of them. But yes, there is a, a team of people who are working wherever they may work, because a lot of them work for me on the East Coast. Uh, I've got one person who works for me from Greece. So they, they may be all over the place, but I do have a, a lovely team that sort of focuses on one of those three parts of the triangle. Got it. And a question I wanna to ask to that point, because I've noticed this in my own business, and I feel like I empathize with a lot of other clients and other business owners that have felt that when they go from kind of perfecting their thing, whatever that might be, that practice, and then they feel that they have to give up a piece of that now to, you know, an employee or another expert that they're going to rely on, it can be a scary thing, kind of like a leap of faith of now this is a direct ref reflection back on me and my work, however this person is going to perform what was some of maybe your experience with that? Because obviously it started out as just Jennifer and then it grew and then it mushroomed into this, this big triangle now that's like all over the world. Can you take us through that? Did you have those nerves or were you just like, Hey, I'm, I'm just going to trust in this person I pick and let's roll with it. That is a great question. And it's one that I would say almost every business owner will attest it's a long road to a good path with that because mm -hmm. finding your infrastructure there are i have some wonderful friends who are experts on how you build the infrastructure in your business and i can honestly say i am not that person what i can okay. say is that i have tried uh many different paths and some have been successful and some have not in terms of crafting that infrastructure Mm -hmm. For my own business, and I can't say this is going to work for all businesses, but for my own business, it has been a, a test experience with the staff that I've built. With the people that work with me, I have brought them on, the ones that I've brought on successfully, I brought them on in a small way first. We try things. And because of the way that my business works, everything is sort of project-based. So whether that's with design, where we are, we have a project that we're doing, we're designing a bathroom, we're building a house, mm -hmm. or when it's a television show, we have an episode of a TV show, we've got a new series. These are all project-based concepts. And so I've been able over the years to test out different people in different capacities in terms of one project at a time. Let's see how you do in this role on this thing. And it could be something as small as, a CAD artist, actually a great example, um, yeah. because Litza, who I was talking about, who works for me in Greece, uh, she's my CAD artist. And she, I think I tested her out on like a bathroom floor plan 15 years ago and said, Can you know, do this for me. Let's see how things go. And we're 15 years later. And I'm still, wow. you know, messaging her at midnight <laughs> because I know she's on a different, <laughs> different time zone. So I think my road to success in building the infrastructure has really been allowing each person that I bring to my team 
to be tested out in a way that makes both of us comfortable. It's not like it's an exam and they pass or fail. It's really, mm -hmm. do we fit? Do our energies fit? Do our, our business sensibilities fit? Learning each person and how they work, which is I think one of the biggest challenges of being a business owner is learning how to communicate and navigate. That's something that is challenging because every person is different and understanding how they work best may not be the way you work best. So understanding a common language for each person that you work with. So for me, it's really been the test on a project kind of experience and build a relationship. And what would you say is, because there's a lot that you're doing right now, what would you say is kind of the hardest thing that you've had to handle, whether it be in TV, dealing with the branding, or going back to your roots of designing? Um, do you feel like there's one that that's kind of like a struggle that it, it's maybe it's worth it, but to, to get it done, to manage it is a, a, a bigger lift than maybe the other two parts of the triangle. I think my show home experience is a big lift. It's what I say. It's the hardest. No, but is it the, the most time intensive and requires the most contribution from my brain pan as well as from all of my support all around me and all of my brand partners definitely so i create what i call a show house experience so a typical show home is one where all these different designers come to one house somebody's organizing and producing this and each designer takes a room and they sort of in some ways they try to out design each other so mm -hmm. that their space is the most memorable and then the public comes in, they buy a ticket, they walk through the house, they see these amazing rooms, they're all so cool. An hour later, they're off the tour and that's the end. So a few years ago, we I, I've teamed up with Informa Markets, which is my marketing partner, and they are the parent company for the International Surface event amongst many other fabulous trade shows. But the International Surface event is one of my main project partners. and. Uh, I, I work with their marketing genius over there, Michelle Swayze, who is my right hand in all marketing uh, development when it comes to the show homes. And the, the new structure that we created is an ongoing experience where I take a, a home that is in need of love and transformation, and I craft that as a singular vision. So it is a Jennifer Farrell design top to bottom. Okay. There's not a pillow in the house that I didn't pick out. And so each one is themed and we've, we've built the model up over time because I've done many show houses at this point, but we've really reached the, the pinnacle of our new format for that with Calibu Vineyard. So Calibu Vineyard was an experience where it was two years of ongoing releases in marketing deliverables. So we teamed up with 22 different brand partners and brought in the finest of their products and materials that I was able to select all as part of my design. So it wasn't uh, them throwing things at me. They basically opened their doors and said, come in and showcase uh, showcase what, what you would like to showcase. And then we would do so many different layers of deliverables over, not just a social content, but we had our ongoing uh, marketing release of emails and newsletters. I think we sent out 1.3 million uh, emails to our targeted A&D community. We did virtual reveals of our different spaces. So you could actually see the completed design sometimes more than a year before it was actually transformed. And they were photorealistic to the point that I can still look at a picture of the bathroom that is a photograph and I can look at a picture of the bathroom that's a rendering from two years earlier and I can't tell you which one's which and I know <laughs> the project pretty well. Uh, so we did a massive social media campaign. We did a television mini series chronicling the transformation. We did a virtual shoppable tour where you could literally tour the entire 19 room estate and click and shop as you go. Wow, uh, so that you could shop cool. all the project, the whole project. You could shop the products there. We did a series of releases in Lux Magazine, which is our media partner for the project. We've now been in over a dozen magazines. It's the Calibu Vineyards won a lot of design awards. It's been published a lot, and then it culminated with our VIP reveal party, 
as well as our press events, and then a classic ticketed show home tour. So the experience that we're all used to with show homes where the public gets to buy a ticket and tour the project, we did that as well. And then our, our lead project partners also were able to do other activations in the house. They all got commercials with me involved. Um, they got video content, photo content. So it's an ongoing series of two years of marketing deliverables. And I would say that that is a, a big lift and there is no way I could lift that with just these two arms. That takes a whole <laughs> universe of people to really build such a monumental experience. Yeah, I was going to say that sounds like a, a monster kind of project. And <laughs> you think about it, I mean, from a business standpoint, that is a, a slam dunk. I mean, every single object within a house is, is a product that mm -hmm. is up for sale somewhere. So as you, you kind of do this virtual tour, or the in-person tour, I mean, it just seems like unlimited opportunities that you could build off of. Well, that's completely a... true. And brand partnerships, as I said, that's really the, the apex of my, my triangle right now. And mm -hmm. it's brought the two parts of my world together. And I find that I think one of my, my skill sets has really been helping brands to learn about brand collaboration and cross-collaborating. Because supporting other brands that are a non-compete is an excellent way to exponentialize your brand reach and exposure. I talk about it a lot. I practice it a lot. And it's not only one of the biggest functions of my show home experiences, but it's what I try to imbue to others about getting their business better exposure. You are not hurting yourself when you ask another brand how can I help you? That's not hurting you. That's actually showing support to them and support tends to multiply. So I approach a brand not asking, what can you give me? I approach saying, what can I do to support your brand? And in doing that, that favor is often returned in spades. Mm -hmm. That is, I mean, there's so much that you could kind of pick out there. Um, I love the, the concept and you could see this triangle kind of coming together, you know, that it, it really is a nice model. So just to pick one element, if I could get you on the technical side. If, so if we go back to the folks that are listening today that are the creatives or maybe they have a passion for design, what is, we'll start with, what is your favorite part of the design project? Do you have a room that you love, whether it's the bathroom, the kitchen, the bedroom, what, I... where do you just get so excited? You know, I, I get excited about a lot of things. I will say that the kitchen and bath universe is definitely a big part of my wheelhouse. And the surfaces universe is a big part of my wheelhouse. I get very excited. I, tile for me has always been just kid in a candy shop. Tile is one of the great unifiers of our civilization. And I don't think it gets often addressed as that. But mm -hmm. there is no building on the planet that doesn't have tile, whether it's a mosaic from ancient Pompeii or a field tile in a bathroom in middle America. These are one of the, the communicators of the story of our human history. And the, that element of tile for me has always been very exciting. Kitchens and baths don't exist without tile in some form. And I work a lot in the appliance universe. I work a lot in the tile and other surfaces universe. I am a lighting junkie. I, so I'm always excited about the sculptural element of lighting. So a lot of these different pieces, parts that get me passionate are things mm -hmm. that I find in the kitchen and bath world. Also going back to me being a big math nerd, designing kitchens and baths is, it is so much about numbers. You, people have no idea until they're in the industry actually designing a kitchen or bathroom how much of all of that silly calculus that you learned, like how much of that's going to end up playing into what you're doing in a, your day-to-day -day job if you're designing kitchens and baths. It is a lot of math, a lot of calculations, a lot of measuring and pre and planning. You can't make mathematical mistakes when you're designing a kitchen yep. or a bathroom. Yeah, everything needs to fit. That's for sure. 
And um, is there a starting point? Like, do you say, okay, I want to go look at the bathroom. I want to look at the tile, like you said, and then we're going to use that to flow into the bedroom and then flow into the design of the hallway or like, do you start somewhere or do you just kind of have this like grand theme and then you start to kind of pick away at each, each piece? In terms of design, I think that psychology and client relationship, I, I actually just said this before, but I sorry, I'm repeating myself, but psychology and design relationships with your client are the starting point for everything because the relationship that you build with a client is going to inform your design. Understanding who they are as people, how they live in their homes, who lives there, what do they do? What do they like? What do they not like? And sometimes a client is not a reliable narrator. They might tell you, I love mid-century modern. And then you look at the things they like and those are not mid-century modern things. That's you know like a minimalist design, but <laughs> really trying to hear what they're saying even beyond their words, understanding things that make them smile, understand things that make them frown. That's mm. the starting point. And it's building that relationship, which also goes over into real estate 100%. And you know, I do get to travel the country talking about real estate and talking about it from not only from trends and, and market forecast, but to understanding building that client relationship. And one of the most important things is not necessarily what your clients say, but understanding how they feel. And that does, that requires a lot of listening, listening, not just with their words, but listening to their energy as they're speaking, where do they light up? Where do they crash? What, what makes them cringe? What makes them glow? These are things that it does take time, but it's really about paying attention and building that relationship so that you understand. So to decide how you're taking a nuts and bolts element of a physical design as your inspiration, that's going to come from your clients. Sometimes it ends up being a pillow that their grandmother crocheted 50 years ago. Sometimes it ends up being their dog where they absolutely love their dog and we're going to build something that's inspired by their dog's hair. Like these are weird elements, but it's yeah. things that gets the They're heart unique. beating well. And yeah. that's where it's, it's more about the psychology than an actual, this looks cool. Yeah. And so you get to know your client, you, you build that relationship. So you have, you're on the same wavelength of what the project is going to look like. A few follow-up questions I have. As you're describing this, I'm thinking of um, one time we were on vacation with the family and we went to Warner Bros. Studios and we did a whole tour, like, you know, their, their back lot, the studios, and then they take you to the prop warehouse and you just go in this like enormous building and they're like, oh, this is the lamp section. And, and it's just endless amounts of, you know, shelves of lamps that they just grab one to put on the set of friends or whatever it might be. Where, like, I, I look at that, I just get overwhelmed. I'm like, I wouldn't know which one of these to pick. How do you narrow that down? Do you like set yourself, okay, I'm going to look at these for 20 minutes and then I'll just pick whatever jumps out at me? Like, how do you go through that when there's just so much in the design world? And that is true. And, you know, I also am a product designer, so I have my own collections of materials. So I think in terms of shape, texture, color, and motif. I think mm -hmm. that way when I'm designing products, but I also think that way when I'm selecting products. So let's say I'm trying to pick out a lamp that's going on your desk and I know who you are and I know what style we're going for. I start understanding a little more about our color palette as we get to know each other. I start crafting what pieces are going to need to go in this space. And I know you're going to need your desk and your chair and you're going to need a credenza. You're going to need a bookshelf and then you're going to need a lamp. So when I'm picking that lamp, I have in my design brain parameters. So I know mm -hmm. that I need it to be X tall because if it's this tall, it's going to be too tall for your desk. If it's this short, it's going to be too short for your desk. I know that I want it to be this kind of motif for you in particular, I'm going to know whether I want it to be super contemporary, very traditional. Do I want something big, fat, and chunky, something slim and streamlined? And then I start thinking about the materials I want it to be made of. 
Um, if I know that I'm going to be doing some bronze accents in your space, maybe I'm going to be looking for one with bronze accents on the lamp. So it ties with some other pieces in the room. So I have mm. sort of a checklist of, of items that I'm looking for. And okay. I have great resources and I have been working in this business for a long time. So I kind of know where to go to look once I know yeah. my checklist. And then I will look through personally, if I'm selecting a lamp, I might look through 500 lamps. I can do it very quickly because I know how to do that very quickly. Yeah. But I will yeah. look through 500. I will pick out 10. And from that 10, I will select the one that then fits as a component with all the other pieces that are going into the space. It may not even be my favorite lamp. It's my favorite for the space with everything else. And then I have those other nine as my backup options to present to the client should they say, oh, I'm not crazy about that first choice. And so, and that brings up, I know I have so many questions here on the creative side, because I like kind of, you know, geeking out on this. Which when I love, by the point, way, since this is a business conversation and you want to know all about <laughs> picking lamps. Yeah, right. So when we're picking the lamp, who gets the final say? Like if the client says, oh, Jennifer, this is fantastic. And you're like, oh my gosh, this is going to ruin the whole room. Is the client always right? Do they get the, the final so, say? And, and this is something that is my philosophy and not every designer would agree with me, but it is my company's philosophy. It is my brand's philosophy. It is something that I share with everyone who works with me. If, and I, I've said this before, so if anyone watching has heard me say this, I apologize, but it is my company line. If we have a client who says, I want a purple elephant in the middle of my living room. We are going to design the best room in the world around that purple elephant. And we're going to make the purple elephant make sense because you cannot tell a client they don't love something. Mm -hmm. If they love it, there's a reason you may not agree with it. And I never, I never actually say no, I might guide a client to a better yes. So I don't say, no, that's stupid, that's ugly, we're not doing that. I may say, we could do the purple elephant or we could do the pink elephants and have mm -hmm. a purple pillow next to it. So I might present alternatives, but at the end, yes, the client is right, except when it comes to budget. And that's one where if the client says, hey, I have to have this refrigerator and I've gotta have it for $50, there is a limit to what can actually happen in terms of budget. So if a client says, this is what we need, I can say realistically that can be done or financially that dollar amount will not pay for this product. Okay. So that's something that kind of becomes a little bit of a harder line. But in terms yep. of creativity, I my job is not to make a Jennifer Farrell room. I get to do that with my show houses. It is yep. my job as a designer for the residential client space to craft the best possible environment for my clients that feels like them. So there are Got some it. homes yep. that I've, I've designed over the years that never in a million years would it be the home that I would personally live in. And yet as I'm designing <laughs> it, I fall madly in love with it because I start seeing the things that make my clients happy. I start seeing it through their eyes. And then I try to craft in the best possible way to achieve that. Perfect. Yep. So there is some compromise to what the client ultimately wants. It's kind of mm -hmm. like I've spoken with with chefs that have said, you know, I, I get the, the the best lamb in the world and I serve it rare. If the customer wants it anyway else, they can go find another restaurant. So it sounds like you're a little like, you know, we're going to work with the client first, but then, you know, interject your talent. Well, and there the is, you know, this is where relationships in all businesses I do think are important, but the one thing that's different about being an interior designer is that your entire job is to go into someone's home that when you first start out, you don't even know and completely change it, completely mm -hmm. tell them a new way to live their lives. So this is a very invasive process. It's very personal. Client relationships in some ways never go away. I still have clients who call me from 20 years ago. And that's because you are invading their personal space and changing it forever. So in doing that, if you aren't willing as a designer to compromise to the things that touch their personal spirit and their hearts, then maybe 
maybe don't do it as a residential designer because residential design, there are real people who are going to wake up in that bed that you picked and yeah. they are going to make coffee in that kitchen that you made every single day, maybe forever. Mm -hmm. And that is a very personal experience. So there has to be sure. compromise and understanding that it really can't be it's my way or the highway because it's not my home. Correct. Yeah. Understood. And so last question I have for you while we're on the kind of creative theme here. So the extent of my creativity personally, I, I assume would be writing, you know, I've, I've wrote three books that have been published and, and I love writing. I love being an author. That's kind of, I guess, as I look at this triangle of being a financial advisor and investor, maybe that's one of my parts of the triangle is author. The hardest thing I think any author will attest to is when you get writer's block mm -hmm. and you say, you know, okay. this is what I want to do. And then you sit down with your computer or the typewriter or your book and you're like, man, I've been here for an hour and I don't have a, a darn thing to put pen to paper. Do you get that in a property where you walk in one day and you're just like, I don't know where to go. And if you do have a, a writer's block of design, what, how do you get out of it? What's your strategy? Well, and, and I think writer's block is a good term to use for anyone in the entrepreneurial space. Because if you are crafting anything where someone is not necessarily telling you how to do it, where mm -hmm. you are self-guiding, there's always a moment in your career somewhere along the line where you're stuck on the, the impetus to move you forward on crafting that. So how do you get past it? Well, for me, I feel like in terms of design, it's collaboration is great because if you get stuck, I got people around me that I can reach out to and say, Hey, I am in a hole on this one and I can't see through and here's where we are and here's where I'm trying to go and I can't get there. And mm -hmm. I have fellow collaborators who can say, Hey, did you think about this? And so that's where, it's a little bit different than being a writer in that, you know, a lot of times you are writing in a vacuum and there's no mm -hmm. one to bounce ideas off of. Something though that I just said in the beginning of our conversation about diversification, I think is really important in today's world because I think, especially in our economy and where we are in terms of innovation and technology and not really knowing what the future holds, particularly with AI creeping into basically every aspect of life right now. And we don't know what that's going to look like in five years or five minutes. Yeah. Not knowing are the interest rates and the mortgage rates going to be astronomical tomorrow or are they going to bottom out again? We, we, we're in a very uncertain time in terms of our political climate, our economical climate. Things have been... Uh, unpredictable and volatile and a little bit shaky ground. And it's not always like that. We have to remember that it's not always mm -hmm. like that. But what I have found in 22 years of business or now 23 is that the diversification of what I do for a living has gotten me through always. So there are years where the real estate part of my world is stronger, where that's coming into my, my public figure and my real estate base and my brand partnerships. I've found that there are times when the design part of my world is the, the driving force. There's times when the brand partnerships, having different parts of this big triangle that always keep us busy. That's mm -hmm. where I feel, I, you know, no one is totally economic climate proof, but it helps you weather the storm, whether it's a writer's block storm, or whether it is an economic storm, going through that moment of, I don't know how to get moving forward in my creative or my business drive in this spot, maybe that's when you step away, take a breath and go over here to support this part of your, your business triangle. So I think diversification is a lot of times very helpful. And I will say diversification mm -hmm. for me helps fuel my creativity. Because as I partner with brands and I think about their needs, it actually inspires my creativity on products, products I can help create for them because they need this. I've got this idea. 
So sometimes yeah. reaching out to other parts of your diversified business model can mm -hmm. can inspire you and get rid of that you know writer's block. Okay, got it. So when you're kind of stuck at one part of the triangle, move on to one of the others and, and then maybe, maybe not move on, but reach to that other yep. part to help support. Got it. Well said. And so to pivot a little bit, I know we've been spending some time on the creative process, uh, which I love. If we get over to the real estate side, which is, you know, I, I think a lot of people, they hear interior design, they're not thinking of, you know, a real estate economist per se, but they play together, you know, home values dictate a lot of what we're able to do. So with that said, I mean, what are some of the trends you're seeing? You know, we just started as we're airing this, this is the 10th of January in 2024. So we got a brand new year here. Um, what are maybe some of the trends you're seeing or hearing about in 2024 and your outlook? We won't hold you to it, but what's your outlook this year? It has been an interesting 24 months in the real estate universe. And mm -hmm. my end of the real estate universe is more in the luxury end, but my, my knowledge base is for the climate in general. And I would say the, the experts in real estate, the ones who have survived and thrived will also use the word diversification. They will say that uh, your, your best bet to weathering an uncertain market is to diversify your business enough so that you may specialize in one area, but be open to other areas so that you can support, like if the luxury market isn't as strong, have another mm -hmm. base, have a base of rental properties, have a base of uh, short-term rentals. You can, you can, there's different ways to support your real estate business. The forecast for 2024 is actually good. So 2023 mm -hmm. was a really, I mean, it was probably the hardest year in the real estate industry, uh, even from the people that I know and work with who are the top agents in the country. They said mm -hmm. this was the hardest year of their careers, that it was so wildly unpredictable. It was so impossible to really do the things that you did before consistently with success and have them still work. Um, hmm. Client expectations were too high, just like the mortgage interest rates were too high. We had, and, and, you know, historically, they're not actually that high. We're just spoiled now because we've been used sure. to these absurdly low mortgage rates that have really been devalued. And now we're, we're all getting, you know, bitten in the backside because of that. Yeah. But this year, this past year of 2023 has been the most challenging year in real estate in my memory, since I bought my first property in 1996, I think. Hmm. So it's been a crazy year. The forecast for 2024 is that the mortgage interest rates are going to be going down. They're yeah. going to hopefully go down enough that buyer confidence escalates. Seller expectations have started to shift because sellers are starting to understand that you can't necessarily always get the top of the bubble dollar on a sale, particularly when buyer confidence in mortgage rates is not there and when an economy and political climate is uncertain. Those are things that make people a little hesitant to buy. Sure. This year though, we're all coming kind of away from that 2023 um, spike on the mortgage rates. And yep. so people are getting excited in the buying climate again. And the, so the climate is turning. The key to remember is that there will always be people who buy a house. Mm -hmm. There will always be people who buy a house. So in knowing that there will always be buyers, then the sellers, their, their job now is to manage expectations. It may take a little longer to sell than when the market's on fire, but that can, maybe that's not exciting for you as a seller, but what that means is we have a steadier economy in the mortgage sector as well as in the home sales sector. 
when we've got buyers who are thinking a little more thoroughly about a purchase before making it, that means they're committing to that purchase. That means you're going to have fewer of them fall out of escrow. And every time a house falls out of escrow, there's frustration on all parts. So there's, there's a good outlook for 2024. The key is that the agents also have to be prepared to diversify and be patient and consistent. And you can't just rest on your laurels as an agent right now. This is not the time. This is the time to double down on relationships, on marketing, on networking. I hate the word networking. I I do because (laughs) it always sounded so artificial to me. And I've realized, wait a minute, that is all I do in my business all day long is networking, building those relationships. It's absolutely fundamental in the real estate sector. Got it. So kind of going back to those basics of what made you successful in the first place. Mm-hmm. And as, as we talk about some of these trends, you know, I think when people hear real estate, they look at what's happened over the past, you know, four years, um, just to have kind of recent memory since COVID and everything. You have this mass exodus, you know, from a lot of the cities, you know, it, where we're leaving the metropolis, we're going to suburbia. And then furthermore, especially where I'm from, I'm in, in Jersey and, and operating in the, you know, the New York City area, you're seeing condos on top of condos on top of condos that it seems like they're building them faster than could possibly be filled up. I don't, you're obviously on the West Coast. I don't know if that trend is very similar, um, but how is that affecting what you do? I mean, are are millennials and new buyers, are they looking for smaller, for convenience? Is it shifting kind of the idea of what a home looks like? I think that the your your iPhone has shifted the idea of what the world looks like because now millennials will grab their phones and in 30 seconds, they can see 30 different designs of stunning spaces that suddenly they not only seem achievable, but accessible because they're right there in their phone. And that's not how design was translated 10 years ago. You know, 10 years ago, if you wanted to see the latest in design, you went to a magazine stand and you picked up a magazine and you flipped through it to see what was the hot stuff. So the the accessibility of high-end design is so immediate with these fabulous inventions called cell phones and on Instagram and other sources where the millennials and other generations can access design quickly. How is that translating in terms of business is that I think what we're, what I'm sort of seeing is I'm seeing some, some response from people in the, I'd say 35 and under bracket that Mm -hmm. They saw it on Instagram, they loved it, but they couldn't figure out how to achieve it in their own space. And they made some trial and error attempts. They bought this great couch, but the couch doesn't fit. And it, it looks so good in the, in the Instagram photo they saw and they you know, just were so excited and it doesn't work in their space at all. So I think that it's managing expectations as well, that just because you see it on Instagram and it looks so great in a photo does not necessarily mean it's easy to translate that into your own home. And that is what mm-hmm. interior designers do. It's, it's our job to figure out all the pieces, parts that go into making the, the vision something that's reality for your space. So I do think that the way the home space has changed a lot, it is definitely based on communities because some areas are very condo driven, some areas are uh, spec home driven, some areas are more single family, unique uh, ground up builds. Um, uh, California is very much a remodel state. We are a place where, especially in the greater Los Angeles area, which is where I'm based, mm-hmm. so many homes, there really aren't um, spec home communities. That's that once you get out of the Los Angeles basin, yes, but in Los Angeles proper, that doesn't exist. Every home is like a unique custom home. A lot of them are older and have been remodeled. And the ones that are being built from the ground up nowadays, we don't really have any, um, financially accessible ground up builds in Los Angeles. We might do additions. No, we might do additions, but Really, if it's a custom home build, I mean, 
I don't really know any ground up custom home builds that are less than $5 million in the Los yeah. Angeles basin. So it's a, it depends on where your market is. And I think that especially in the Los Angeles area and Southern California to an extent, I mm -hmm. think that if there is a millennial buying a home of that, that budget, they are willing to open up to the idea of having an interior design team supporting them in making that journey so that it's a completed fleshed out home. I think it does become budget challenging sometimes when you're, you know, if you're in your first one bedroom condo, hiring an interior designer, that, that yeah, may be a little sense. spooky, but it yeah. does, it does sometimes. So it really just depends on the needs. And a lot of times designers end up costing less than trying to do it yourself and failing. Yeah, true. Good point. And so last question on that, that I wanted to pose to you, because I, I know you've, you've done so much and especially in this kind of ultra high end field, do you have a favorite project that, that you go back to that it was, whether it was the biggest or it was the best that, you know, it's kind of like your, your pride your, your, that you look back on. I'm very proud of Calibu Vineyard. That is something that it's the, the show home that we just finished the marketing cycle earlier this year, and it has won several design awards. I am proud of it because it's it was sort of a Herculean effort. I mean, it's 7,300 square feet and 19 wow. rooms on three and a half acres. We built a working vineyard. We're actually making fantastic wine. So awesome. that was really such a large effort, not just in terms of design, but in terms of marketing and brand partnership building and just so many different layers to that project. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the project I'm most proud of. I'm now about to embark on my new show home with the International Surface event. And we will be revealing the concept at the International Surface event January 24th through 26th of this year. So that is coming up right now. And the show home concept is one that I'm extremely excited about. It's very design forward. It's mm -hmm. in my mind, really the house of 2030 and beyond. And there's a lot of the aesthetic will be ancient meets modern. There are some really interesting, sustainable and adaptable elements to the space besides having stunning luxury design. There's just a lot conceptually that I'm really excited about. And I, I do have client projects that I've also loved over the years and some of my favorites that I always love to look back at the photos of. But I think in getting to craft a concept, that's the part about the design that to me is most exciting. That's awesome. And so now, Jennifer, if we could, I just want to transition to the lightning round, uh, which is my viewers and listeners. It's often their favorite segment of the show, if we could, where... I'll just pose some questions to you and then you tell me okay. the first thing that comes to mind and we'll okay. get to know a little bit more about Jennifer Farrell. Oh boy. All right. So the first one up, what is your favorite book? My favorite book. That's a great question. Um, I didn't realize this, but it's probably Oryx and Crakey. Um, it's, I don't know if it's my favorite, but it's one that I come back to often in my brain about the way the world may end up looking if we don't take better care of it and it transitions to the next evolution of civilization. Interesting. And do you have a, a quote or words that you live by? Don't waste my time. <laughs> I have, you know, a limited number of years on this planet as we all do. And I take every single moment I have as something I value and cherish. I don't waste your time. Don't waste mine. Perfect. I like it. And I know you've traveled quite a bit, you know, pleasure, but then also business. Do you have a favorite destination or vacation? I always love going back to France. And while that may sound cliche, which is a French word, I <laughs> think there is an inherent romance in the history and architecture of all parts of France, south of France and wine country and Paris. So France always has a special place in my heart. Awesome. And growing up, did you have a hero? And if so, who was it? Einstein. Absolutely. I was obsessed. I and I talk about some interesting interior design. My bedroom walls had life-size posters of Einstein everywhere, including the ceiling. So when the other kids were, <laughs> yeah. you know, rocking out on Bon Jovi posters, I had Einstein everywhere. 
Hmm, interesting. And do you have a favorite movie? Hmm. It changes over the years. For many years, it was The Abyss. I think now it's Interstellar. Um, okay. It, it does shift over time, but I love stories about the farthest reaches of space, time, our concept of the universe, and how that translates to the human heart. And I think The Abyss does that in terms of uh, reaching into the depths of water, and Interstellar does that in terms of reaching into the far, the far expanse of the sky. And but they're both kind of the same, the same beat inside. How does that extensive reach into the unknown translate to the human heart? Interesting. And then our last two here, do you have on the positive side, do you have a tipping point, either personally or professionally, that you can look back on? that you feel took you to the next level? A couple, because in terms of television, I think it was when I was cast to host Find and Design. I think that took me from a television designer to an established television host. I was still a designer, but having that host moment allowed a little more of a marquee player opportunity for me. And so I do think that was in terms of TV, a real career shifter for me. And, and but that was a long time ago. I, I started hosting that show in 2006, I think for my design business, interestingly enough, it was probably in 2018 with dwell on design dwell on design is a, uh, was a huge uh, contemporary design trade show. And I was asked for two things from Dwell on Design. One was to design what they called the Method Home, where they built basically this modern home inside the convention center. And they asked me to design that. And then the other was as uh, one of the, they, they did a tour called the Dwell on Design Home Tour. And it was the basically five or six of the greatest architectural and design projects in whatever area they were doing the tour. And they chose my uh, Showhouse Diablo Ranch for that tour. And I think those two moments for the design community and the architecture and design community, I think there was a shift in how I was perceived as a brand, because even though I'd had a very successful design business for many years, having that opportunity, I think a lot of people in the design community stopped looking at me as, oh, she's that TV girl who designs mm -hmm. instead of, oh, she's that TV girl who designs. Now it's, oh, she's, you know, she's a legit respected interior designer who happens to host television shows. So I think that was a real shift in perception in my own industry sure. about who I am as a brand. Got it. And then on the flip side, do you have a mistake or any moment that you look back on in your career where you say, man, I, I missed that? Or if I could just go back and have done that differently, anything that just kind of sticks with you? Gosh, I don't know. I'm sure there are some, some fabric choices I would have made differently in design. <laughs> um, there's real estate purchases that I wish I made that I, I didn't and I should have we jumped have in. Those. Yep. Uh, we all have those like, darn it. Why didn't I buy that thing? Um, I think though, it, there really aren't a lot of experiences for that. I don't really think of experiences in that way. I mm -hmm. often say, you know, I have never failed. I've only done things that didn't work out the way I planned. And I know that's sort of paraphrasing Edison a little bit about light bulbs, but I do actually feel that way. Genuinely. There are things that I have done that did not work the way I thought they were going to work. But there's very little that I have done that I didn't learn something from that experience and then not regret doing that because then I learned mm -hmm. something that I was able to translate into a better experience. So I think on that one, you know, my mom says, I always see things with rose colored glasses. Maybe I do, but I do feel that uh, I, don't, I don't really think there's too many things that I've done that I regret. There's only things that didn't quite go the original intention, but I was able to pivot and take that to success. Yep. And to learn to move on. That's awesome. Yeah. So I know, uh, Jennifer, I know you're busy. I know you've got a lot of exciting projects and things going on that you alluded to a moment ago. 
if people want to know more, where can they follow you and what's next up that they really got to keep their eyes out for? Yes. Okay. So I will rattle this off quickly. Please follow sure. me on Instagram at Jennifer Farrell Designs. That's F-A-R-R-E-L-L. Um, so Jennifer Farrell Designs, or you can follow me on Facebook. Same same thing at Jennifer Farrell Designs. My website is jenniferferralldesigns.com. You can check me out, see all about me. But I have my wonderful livable luxury tile collection with Louisville Tile that the spring 2024 collection is launching at the International Surface Event January 24th through 26th in Las Vegas at the Mandalay Bay Convention Center. At the same time, we will also be unveiling our new services show home concept at the show. So if you are in the Las Vegas area, it is an amazing show. You'll It's the largest services show in the country. You won't want to miss it. I also will be at KBiz, which is the kitchen and bath show in Las Vegas in February. We'll be doing all sorts of fun stuff there. And then I will be at High Point, which is in North Carolina in April. I'll be speaking there and I'll have some huge announcements to make. So those are all the, the fun things. Plus keep watching my TV shows. I know you've got your DVR set for Million Dollar House Hunters. Um, but keep watching my shows and, uh, that's a, that's a little bit about what I'll be doing this year. Awesome. And we'll definitely put links to all of that in our show notes today. So everybody can follow and uh, stay up to date, you know, with, with your latest goings on. So Jennifer, thanks so much for making the time today. I, I love that triangle method of approaching business. I think a lot of people have some takeaways that they can implement on their own as well. Um, so thank you very much for making the time today, Jennifer. Thanks a lot, Brian. Yep. And everyone, please keep on tuning in and subscribe wherever you may be, whether it's on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Brian Kaderna, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is intended for the general public and for informational purposes only. The show does not provide any recommendations or investment advice regarding any specific account type, service, strategy, or product, or to otherwise act in any fiduciary or other capacity. Please contact a financial professional for guidance and information that is specific to your situation. Brian Kaderna does not provide tax or legal advice. Please contact your accountant or legal advisor to discuss your situation. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or Kaderna Financial Team, and opinions stated are their own. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. References to specific securities, asset classes, and financial markets are for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a solicitation, offer, or recommendation to purchase or sell a security. Brian Kaderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 300 Broadacres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey, 07003, phone number 973-244-4420. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Kaderna Financial Team is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. California Insurance License Number 0K04194.